You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So as we get into Ezra, um, I just have to acknowledge that today we're going to deal with something that's been a, a problem for my understanding for a long time. Why you do it? Why do you do it in the morning when you know you're going to mess it up at night? You know what I'm talking about. For those of you who do it every day, why do you make up your bed? It's a good question, right? You make it up, but you know you're just going to you're just going to mess it up and you may be judging me right now. You may be saying, "Chris, your bed's not made." Absolutely, it's not made. If you were coming over, thank you, Anne's with me. She's like, "Yes, yes, exactly." See guys, but here's the thing. I'm actually going to bless you. For those of you who are like every morning, 7 a.m., making up the bed, here's your theological defense for that decision. <laughs> As image bearers of God, we are created to bring order out of chaos. That's what we're created to do. Psychologist Jordan Peterson talks about how um, when you watch an Olympic-level gymnast do something that just seems to defy human physical ability, and she somehow lands it, and, and, and you know her hands are like this. He says, you have to jump up and applause, in, in applause but, but it's not just because somebody did something cool. From Peterson's psychological perspective, he says, it's because you saw someone go beyond their perfection into the domain of chaos and establish order right in front of your eyes. That's what's going on. Friends, how many of us feel the ache to bring order out of chaos? Right? We want to do it in our families. Uh, we, we want to do it with what we see on the news in, in the greater world. But let me ask this. How many of you are like me that you've discovered that it is really stressful and exhausting to try to bring order out of chaos on your own strength, right? You want so bad for the family to finally get along so that they can have fun at, at the holiday season, or you want your son to finally love Jesus so that he'll make better decisions, or students. Let me talk to y'all for a minute. How many of y'all have that friend that constantly seems to be making really bad choices, and you find yourself texting to try to, like, counsel this person, but there's so much of you that's like, you know, if you would just make better choices, my friend, I wouldn't have to be this grief counselor in your life. Does anybody, anybody know that? Yes, yes. Consequently, most of us find ourselves in this polarity between fixing and indifference, right? Speaking to the pastors in the room. We like to fix, 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 fix you, and then when you don't want to be fixed, guess what we do? We swing into indifference, which can show itself up as cut off. Well, you know, they're just not there yet kind of thing. Here's the thing, guys. That ache to bring order out of chaos is because that's what we were designed to do. We may not be doing it all that well, but that's our design. That's, that's how we were built and one of the most prominent themes in Scripture is God bringing order out of chaos. 
In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then hear this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the ancient world, waters was a, a symbol of chaos. So this idea of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters is the Spirit of God bringing order out of chaos. And then in Genesis 1, later in that chapter, and in Genesis 2, guess what he's creating? He's creating us so that as his image bearers, guess what we're going to do? Bring order out of chaos. And so he says, be fruitful and multiply. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the, the, the animals of the ground. The idea is extend the garden. Why? Because you're called as an image bearer of God to bring order out of chaos. But unfortunately, one of the most overarching, or maybe I should say repetitive themes in Scripture, is that God brings order out of chaos, and then we bring chaos back into God's order. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Friends, here's the thing. Creation is God bringing order out of chaos, but sin is decreation. It's decreation because what happens? It brings chaos back into God's order. And, and what does chaos do? Now, this is important. Chaos always leads to exile, right? Adam and Eve, uh, they, they rebel against God. They push back against his order. They reintroduce chaos into his Garden of Eden. And then they find themselves exiled. God starts back over with Abraham, right? And he starts this, uh, this family of faith that eventually becomes a nation. And Moses, uh, the great-great-great-grandson of Abraham, takes this nation out of exile through this wilderness journey. He restores a law to them. And then the, what is the most important part of Exodus? Do you know? It's the tabernacle. Why? Because... In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had the unhindered presence of God. They got to talk, they got to be with God, and then they were in exile due to their sin. Now with the tabernacle, guess who's back? God. God is back with his people, and they're enjoying God. And it's a beautiful thing. But unfortunately, rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion happens, and finally God says, enough's enough. Have it your way which ends up in exile. For Israel, they go to Assyria. For Judah, they go to Babylon. Call me crazy, but this sounds a little bit like our lives, right? We choose low-hanging fruit that dishonors God and hurts the people that we love, and then we wonder why there seems to be so much distance between us and God and, and us and those we love. Sin leads to emotional exile. Do you see that? And that brings us to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is once again about God bringing order out of chaos, or at least the people of God attempting to bring order out of chaos. And you need to recognize that they're coming out of exile. Why? Because this means that they're not in exile just because they thought of themselves as being overpowered by a more powerful nation. No, them being in exile is a statement of shame. Why? Because it means that they failed to be the covenant people of God. Do you see that? So this coming out of exile and back into Jerusalem is them trying to reclaim their place as the people of God. 
And in chapters 1 through 6, we saw Zerubbabel and his company rebuilding the temple. Now we're in chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ezra 7. And one thing that's important to note is the distance between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is about 60 years. It's about 60 years. So to put that in perspective, someone we know and love who will remain nameless recently turned 60. So it's like her entire life between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not, again, this person will remain nameless. I'm not trying to call anybody old. I'm just giving you a concrete example of how far this is. But Carolyn, if you're watching, I just want you to know I love you. And uh, like I'm drawing a heart for you because I love you so much. Okay, so now we're in chapter 7. And there's a new king, King Artaxerxes, uh, who proclaims himself to be the king of kings. And finally, we're introduced to Ezra. So I want you to know the book's called Ezra, but you're not really introduced to him until chapter 7. Okay, So it's a very long process in these 10 chapters. Um, and Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, who is the great high priest of the people of Israel. And in chapter 7, verse 10, it says that he devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching of its decrees and the laws in Israel. So here's what I want you to understand. The king of kings, Artaxerxes, sends Ezra, this priestly prophetic figure, back to Israel to restore the articles of the temple of worship back into the temple and to teach the people his law, to, or to teach people the law of God. Now the question is why? We get that in verse 23 of chapter 7. The king says, Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence. For the temple of the God of heaven, why should his wrath, I want you to underline that, why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? Do you hear it? What is King Artaxerxes against? He doesn't want chaos loosed on his kingdom, right? He wants the wrath of God held off so that chaos is not reintroduced into the Persian Empire. And so he sends Ezra to be this prophetic voice to the people to reestablish God's covenantal law. Why? Because as an image bearer of God, we are called to bring order out of chaos. And through chapter 7, things are looking good. But then we get to chapter 8, and there is a big issue in front of us. You see, in chapter 8, Ezra and his company are still in Persia, and they have a trek from Persia to Jerusalem. To be accurate, they have about a 900-mile trek between Persia and Jerusalem. Uh, and it's not just a trek. It's a long walk with a lot of silver and gold. To put that in perspective, that's like walking from Augusta to about Dallas, Texas with tons of money in your pocket. Now, here's the thing. In the ancient world, travel was incredibly dangerous. Why? Because you didn't have a police. You didn't have kind of a civil government that was protecting everything. So it is an incredibly dangerous thing. Raiders could come, steal your money, kill you, and it would be months, if not years, before anybody knew anything happened to you. Okay, so this is a tremendous risk. And you begin to understand Ezra's anxiety in verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 22, he said, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road. 
because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his anger is against all who forsake him. Now let me ask you this. Don't y'all get it? It's this, I want to trust God with all my heart. I want to live by faith, but I'd also like to hedge my bets. Anybody else? I'd like to have my, my plan B kind of thing. And so notice that it, it, Ezra says this in, in verse 23. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayers. So rather than having a plan B, rather than going to the king, they fasted and prayed. So notice Ezra's not just a man of the law. He's a man who's willing to make some real risk in, in faith in God. And he leads the people to pray. And, and, and as you come to the end of chapter 8, things are looking good, right? They make it to Jerusalem unscathed. Uh, there's a lot of Levites and, and priests with Ezra. And they've restored the articles of worship back into the temple that had been stolen when Babylon invaded the country. And it's all looking good. They're offering a lot of sacrifices to God. Things are looking good. Everything's there except for the most important thing. What is that? The presence of God. The glory of God. Right? In Ezekiel 10, what did Ezekiel see? He saw the glory of God depart from the temple. So here's what I want you to notice. Now they have the form of religion without the power. And what's the problem with having the form of religion without the power? The problem is you're not going to have the power to bring order into chaos. You're going to be trying to do it on your own strength. Only the power of God can establish the people of God in the land. Only the power of God can change a heart. Amen? So, so friends, the, the thing is, is they've kind of got everything, and yet, unfortunately, they don't have much because the glory of God has not been restored to the temple. And so as image bearers of God, we were created to bring order out of chaos, yet we have to have the power of God to actually be able to do that. So the question is, where is the power of God found? Where is the glory of God? How does he restore that glory to the king, or excuse me, to the kingdom, to the people of God? You may have noticed in this chapter, you've got Artaxerxes, who's the king of kings. You've got the priests. And then you've got Ezra, who's this prophetic figure. In the Israelite government, the government was divided into three branches, much like our government. Now, the question is why? Why do you think they would divide the government into three branches? Because absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Absolutely right? So in essence, you've got to corrupt humanity. You've got to separate out the power, the same reason we separate out the power, to have checks and balances. But there's been this rumor, even some prophecies, about this guy who is going to be the prophet, the priest, and the king. His name's Jesus. Spoiler alert. He's not just Jesus. He's Jesus the Christ, have you ever wondered why we call Jesus Christ? That's not his last name, by the way. Anybody know? What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, you had three figures 
that would either anoint or be anointed. And that was the prophet, the priest, and the king. So Tim Mackey says that anointing marked, and hear me on this, guys, anointing marked a people or a place, a person or a place, as a portal between heaven and earth. And with the kings, the priests, and the prophets, you get this image of a portal of God's rule coming through the king and God's presence coming through the prophet and a portal of God's purpose and word, excuse me, his presence through the priest and then his purpose and word through the prophet. So you need to understand that when we call Jesus the Christ, what we're saying is he is the anointed prophet, priest, and king who will establish a heavenly reality on earth. That's who he is. Carolyn made a statement a few months ago Do you have a Jesus or the Jesus? Let me say this. The Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And the more you give him his place as the prophet, the priest, and the king, the more you begin to experience the presence and the glory of God in your life. So I want to ask a question. Is Jesus your prophet? Does he have space in your life to speak words of correction? Is his voice and his word given space in your life where you can be formed into his image by what he says? And if not, why not? Really, seriously, think about it. Have you received a word of conviction from the Lord in the last year? If not, why not? There are really probably two options, two major options anyway. Firstly is that you're entirely sanctified and there is just nothing to convict in your life. (laughs) Said no one ever. Said no one ever. Correct. The other option is that frankly you're just not making space for him to speak in your life and you're not reading the words so that his word can, can speak into your life. And, and so, so, friends, I, I say this as a word of humility, not, not, of, not of condemnation, but, but seriously think, am I making space for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into my life to let Jesus be my prophet? Also, ask yourself, am I letting Jesus be my prophet in the sense of giving a directive word in my life? Am am I letting him speak about the direction he wants my life to go? Am, Am I making decisions based on what the Holy Spirit is saying? Is he your prophet? Secondly, is is he your priest? Do you have a living uh trust that his sacrifice on the cross is really enough? Or do you live with anxiety? Wondering about where you stand with God. Do you believe now that he intercedes on your behalf? Why? Because he and the Father deeply love you. Hear me on this. If, if you don't receive the justification of being made right with God based on the priestly work of Jesus, if you don't receive it from there, you'll always be working. Right? If Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't get into your heart through living faith, not just a a theological factoid, but something that has living faith in your heart, if it doesn't get there, then you'll try to earn an acceptance that can only be freely given and joyfully received. Now, let, let me speak to people that have been following Jesus for a little while. If you're like me, you get justification by faith on an eternal level but it hasn't sunk into your day-to-day life. 
And, and I'll tell you why. Um, or or why, why this could be the case in your life if you're like me. You still feel compelled to justify yourself by how well you do at work. Or justify yourself by how well you raise your kids. Is raising kids a good thing? Absolutely. Is doing good at work a good thing? Absolutely. But God does not want your sense of justification for your existence to be rooted in those things. He wants your sense of worthiness and worth to be rooted in his love for you and the fact that he calls you his beloved and the fact that he says over Mark, hey, I, I just, I really love that one. And he says over Araya, man, that's, that one is really special to me. Like, that's the kind of voice that justifies us, Right? Finally, the question is, is Jesus your king? Meaning, does he get our allegiance above everything else? An allegiance that isn't born out of guilt or shoulds and oughts, but out of love. Why? Because you've been loved, right? He deeply loves you, and so, so you, you give your allegiance to him. Friends, in, in our journey of allegiance to Christ, we will inevitably be brought to several crossroads, where we have to choose between Jesus and something else. Come on, somebody. Amen. Right? And, and, and so here's, here's the thing. We're going to have to choose. Is Jesus my king or is my bank account my king? Is, is Jesus my king or are my creature comforts and the way I think I ought to use my time my king? Is Jesus my king or are my sexual preferences my king? Um, students, is, is, is Jesus my king or is my, is my friends and are, are my friends and what they want to do, is, is that actually king in my life? And, and, and really just take a minute, not out of condemnation, not out of shame, but just out of self-reflection. Ask yourself, when people look at me, do they see someone who is allegiant to Jesus alone or someone who's struggling with serving two masters? Friends, Here's what's most true. The more I give Jesus his rightful place as prophet, priest, and king in my life, the more I give him that place, the more I begin to walk in power as a Christian, as a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a little Christ. Meaning as Jesus is the great anointed one, I become a little anointed one. Right? And now, in, in a power that poor Ezra would have only dreamed of, I find the power to bring order out of chaos. Friends, it is in Christ that we find the power to bring order out of chaos, and in Christ alone. Peter, James, and John, they walk with Jesus day in and day out. And um, for about three years... And then Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. All authority and all power belongs to him and Peter and John are still on the earth. And they're going into the temple. Now I want you to note that. Where are they going? They're going to the temple, right? And there's this guy who's been lame for a long time and he's begging for money and he looks at Peter and John to ask for money and Peter famously responds to him. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And of course the man's ability to walk is restored to him. And in uh, chapter three of verse, or verse 9, chapter 3 of 
Acts, it says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, wonder and amazement. That was really lame. Let's try that again. Wonder and amazement. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, guys. Notice what just happened. Wonder and amazement was restored to the temple of God. What, what Ezra could not do on his own strength, finally, Peter and John were able to do as Christians, as little anointed ones walking in the power of God. And of course, um, the religious leaders, they had a problem with Peter's declaration of the gospel. Why? Because hear me on this, friends. A religious spirit will always push back against the glory of God. Why? Because you can't control the glory of God, right? But Peter and John responded with great boldness. And the text says that when the Sadducees saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Notice that. They took note of what? They had been with Jesus. Friends, at some point, I want us to come to terms with the fact that Jesus wants us to spend time with him, not simply for our sake, but for the sake of those around us. Okay? Jesus <clears throat> calls us to be with him so that we will actually have the power to push back on the chaos and call people into kingdom order, to call their lives into kingdom order in a, in a gentle way, in a way that is empowered and inspired by the Spirit. Friends, we are called to be Christians. We are called to be little anointed ones. George said last week, he said, our call is not to rebuild buildings. Our call is to rebuild lives. Put that another way is to simply say, in a broken world, we help people become whole through Jesus. Do you hear it? So our view of spending time with Jesus is way too small. We so easily think of our quiet time, our time in the Word, our time in prayer, as simply doing homework for Jesus so that we get an A on our church report card. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Let me say this. Jesus did not call his apostles to be with them so that he could give them an A on a report card. He called them that they might be with him, that they might have power to drive out demons, to heal the sick, and to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. He calls us Christians because what does he want? He wants us to be portals of his heavenly reality on earth, loosing heaven onto earth and loosing the bondage in souls. Friends, that's what God is after. Amen. And so friends, my deep hunger for this community is that we get past the place of having a quiet time for doing Christian homework. And we get to the place of seeking God, searching the scriptures to find Jesus. Why? Because he is the desperate longing of our souls. Yeah. 
because our souls will only find their completeness, their happiness in Him. And here's the thing. We will find our happiness and our joy and our peace in Him, but we'll find a lot more than that because what will happen is the Spirit of God will begin to infuse us with power so that we can begin to push back against the chaos and the the striving and the difficulties that people are facing to see the kingdom of God established in their life. That's what we're after. So friends... I want to ask a question. Where are you today? Where are you today? As I've thought about this message, I think people are probably in one of three places. To some of you, Jesus is maybe still looking at you saying, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Am I a Jesus or am I the Jesus? Am I the prophet, the priest, and the king over your life? And if you haven't taken that step to really allow him to be the prophet, the priest, and the king in your life, then I encourage you, let today be the day of salvation. Surrender to Jesus. Come find me. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. To others of you, you may be in this place where you want to actively partner with the power of God to bring order into the chaos around you. But the reality is there's so much chaos within you that you just feel handcuffed. You feel like you can't get past that. I want to say to you, I invite you to take your own healing seriously. That's part of why we spend so much time in this church Developing things like the Healing Academy and spending time in healing prayer with folks because we want to see them released from the chaos within. We want to see them be uh, experience the healing of King Jesus so that then they can begin to bring the healing to the world around them. So I'd say go after your own healing. But go after your own healing with the acknowledgement that, guys, here's the thing. We are wounded healers meaning that none of us have it all together, right? We are in process. We are being healed while also we're being used as agents of healing. That's what it means to be a Christian. The third type of person is a person that you're spending time alone with King Jesus. You, you sense him in prayer. You sense him speaking through scripture. Like he's ministering to you. But it's time to let the lion out of the cage. It's, it's interesting. As much as it sounds like Heather, Cindy, and I were just all talking about this service and how to make it come together, uh-uh. <laughs> we barely talked this week. So this is, the Holy Spirit wants to get this in us, that it's time to let the lion out of the cage. Not in a mean-spirited way, not in a political way, in a generous, in a loving way. Just to let the Holy Spirit dwell in us and then pour through us. And you say, Chris, I don't know how to pray for folks. Good news, I don't either. I really used to think I did, and I'm serious about that. I used to think I, I kind of knew how to pray for folks. The, the older I live, or the older I get, the longer I live, the, the more I realize I really don't know how to pray for folks. What I know how to do is how to listen to them and how to listen for the Holy Spirit. To hear where they are, hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, and then let Him bear in me this great sense of compassion and this power from the Spirit. That's what I know how to do. And, and, and so, so if you don't know how to, how to pray for folks, good, perfect. 
you're in a great place. Uh, for some of you, you're like, Chris, I don't know how to explain the gospel to other folks. I, I'll just say this, I don't either. At least not in a way that ministers to every single person's everything. What I do know is how to talk to them, how to listen for the needs of their soul, and then let the Holy Spirit remind me of ways that he's poured into my life in a way that might be similar to what they need so that I can begin to speak to the glory of God and call them into that place of hope. So if you don't know what you're doing, you're perfect. You're, you're, you're the right person for the job. Friends, it is time to let the lion out of the cage because we are called to be Christians, little anointed ones that uh, operate as a portal between heaven and earth that heaven can invade earth and restore lives. So wherever you are, I'm going to encourage you, please, don't be passive. Don't be passive. Come to the altar and pray or or find me and pray or turn your chair into an altar and pray. Um, and, And let's just go after God and let's ask for his anointing in this time. Zach, if you just turn down the lights, we're going to pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have called us to be little anointed ones. And that Jesus, because you have called us to be little anointed ones, standing under your anointing, God, you have given us power and authority to bring order out of chaos. And so, Lord, we thank you. And so, Lord, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus, I release that destiny over our people. In Jesus' name, you are called to be a portal between heaven and earth. You're called to minister to souls, to loose the captive, to heal the sick, as a manifestation of the kingdom of God to reveal what our Father is like. And so I just pray that anointing down on my friends. Yeah. We love you, Lord. Stand with me. And we thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.